Welcome to Deacon's Pod. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Deacon Tom, Deacon Mark, and Deacon Patrick. Hi, guys. Hi, this is Deacon Tom. Hey, this is Deacon Mark. Hey, this is Deacon Patrick Murphy Race. Today, we're going to be speaking with Jesuit father Thomas J. Reese. But before we do that, let's check in with everybody. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Hey, Dennis. Back doing well. Very good. Very good. So what is new in your world? What's going on with you, Mark? What do you got going on? Hey, guys. First of all, I want to welcome our new listeners. We've added Amazon and Audible as a home for our podcast. And so we've got uh, a new opportunity for our listeners to, to listen to us. So welcome to those folks. And of course, welcome to all of our listeners. So I've been serving as the spiritual advisor of our new conference of the St. Vincent de Paul Society in my parish, St. Elizabeth in Rockville. And that's been a deeply moving experience. I haven't had, I've had no experience in my previous life with the St. Vincent de Paul Society. And the whole idea of that society is serving our neighbors in need directly right? Not going through other charities, but actually meeting with people in their homes and talking with them and finding out what their needs are and trying to address them. And I think what, as a spiritual advisor and also someone who gets to go to the homes, I've just been moved by the experience of meeting with people in their homes and talking with them. And also, I've been greatly moved by the parishioners who've signed on to this. And I've watched as each of each one of them has been transformed by that experience. They all wanted to do something to reach out to the poor. And I don't know that any of us had a great understanding of what that really would mean. And now that they are actually going out into the homes and then coming back and reporting on their experiences, the stories that they've told have been deeply moving and transformative and, and deepening their relationship with the Lord. So that's been what I've been up to lately. And I, I've, I think I've gotten as much out of this experience as anyone that we are serving. Good, Mark. I'm glad to hear that that's uh, where it gets real, where the rubber meets the road, doing God's work with those people. Well, it's uh, been interesting, right? Parish decided to do a day retreat, and the topic they chose was on purgatory. So we gathered around our parish hall on a Saturday in early December and had a lunch, and 100 people showed up. And what was very interesting was how people are just hungry to hear different teachings of their church and how much misinformation there is. Now, again, it's kind of an interesting topic today, and given all that we have, but again, it just shows the need to understand some of what people are asking for. So that's what they were asking for. So we gave a day and a hundred people showed up. So I do hope it is a sign that post COVID, we might start getting together and do more and more educational. There's an awful lot of our 2000 year church, especially today that we could break open. But what was interesting was I got a call from the pastor today to talk about, you know, purgatory and, you know, we're in the Christmas season here, the fifth day of Christmas, as we record this. And he's asking me, hey, you want to take over the Friday night stations of the cross? Now, <laughs> I'm, it kind of caught me off guard here a little. I was, we're singing the first one well, right? And, uh, but if you look at the calendar, Ash Wednesday is right around the corner. Our, our liturgical calendar this year uh, has Ash Wednesday on February 14th and Easter very early in the year, March 31st. So it is time for planning these things and to clear my very active, very busy Friday night schedules. That doesn't take any work at all to say, yes, Father, I'll be there Friday night at 7 o'clock for stations. But just mindful of our liturgical year, we're always active, looking at the incarnation, the passion and death. Oh, well, it's all connected. Uh, connected. Yeah. It's a big picture on that. So, Deacon Patrick, what's going on in your end of the world? Well, we're going to get another deacon at John the 23rd, the Paulist Church on the campus of the University of Tennessee. He is a transitional deacon in the Paulus Fathers. So I'm kind of excited to see a new person come in the role that I serve in and sharing that role. We're going to try and draw up some baptisms and some, maybe even a wedding for this guy. We don't have a lot of those. So we got to get some people moving here. 
This last month in December, I didn't really do much riding along with the sheriff's department as a chaplain as I normally do. And so I'm going to hopefully hit that hard in January. So I'm excited for this month to kind of get back with my people, my blue people, and spend some time with them. I'm getting ready to do an adult ed thing in the parish on prayer. So I'm looking forward to that. A couple of nights on prayer and meditation. And we'll see how that goes. I'd be happy to report back. But today, for our listeners, including our new listeners on Amazon Music and Audible, today we have something interesting, I think, because of the person who's going to be talking to us. And that is Father Thomas Reese of the Society of Jesus, who has been in the trenches for a very long time reporting, and he's a you know, political scientist and an expert on how the Vatican actually works. We've heard a lot, or we've heard very little, about the synod on synodality. And so he has put together from that 40-page report that came out of the synod, 15 gems. So we're going to talk to Father Tom today and get a lot more information about what really happened. And it shows the potential, I think, for the future of this synod process that Pope Francis has actually set in motion. Let's go talk to Father Tom. Well, we are excited today here on the Deacon's Pod to have with us as our guest, Father Thomas Reese, S.J., a Jesuit priest, an author, a journalist. He was the senior analyst at Religion News Service. He's a former columnist at the National Catholic Reporter and a former editor-in-chief of America Magazine, the Jesuit Catholic Weekly. And he's forgotten more than the rest of us know. So we're happy to have him. Welcome, Father Tom. We're glad to have you here. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. We are, too. Yes. So well, the main thing we wanted to talk about today is this wonderful article you wrote in the November 9th issue of NCR, National Catholic Reporter, titled The 15 Hidden Gems in the Synod on Synodality Report. Now, my takeaway, of course, the Synod has been less than underwhelming as far as I can tell by any measurement in this country, except for geeks like us who were paying attention. And of course, the media was like, well, they're not ordaining women and nothing happened. So there you go. And your article really pulled out of that 40-page report some real indications of decisions and change, however people may feel about them, but there's something did happen at that. So we'd like to kind of talk about that a little bit today, because there's just nothing like that I found in the rest of the media. Nothing. You're hmm. it. You're it. So why don't you start by talking to us about the Senate a little bit, Father Tom, and give us an idea of your take on the whole thing overall, and then maybe we can get into some of the gems you have unearthed on that for us. Sure. Thank you, Dennis. Yeah, this Senate was really different from any other Senate that we've had. As you remember, the Synod of Bishops was created by Pope Paul VI after the Second Vatican Council. You know, the three-year experience of the Council was very meaningful for the bishops who attended, and they were trying to figure out when we go home, is everything just going to go back to the way it was, or how are we going to continue to have uh, input on what's happening in the church and what the Vatican is doing. And so Pope Paul VI created the Synod of Bishops so that periodically he could call to Rome a group of bishops to talk about issues facing the church. And there's been a number of these synods under Paul VI, under John Paul II, Pope Benedict, and now under Pope Francis. But this one, very different. This was a very different kind of a synod because in the past, the only people who participated in the synod were bishops. And this time, in fact, we had 21% of the membership was not bishops. And there were more than 50 women participating in the synod. And they weren't just there as observers. They were there as full, equal participants with the bishops. They could speak as much as the bishops. They could vote 
they could do everything that a bishop could do. So this was a very different kind of, of synod. The second thing that was very different from on the synod was that there was a long preparation for the synod. The Pope called for this synod uh, back in March of 2020, and the synod didn't take place until October of 2023. So there was this time of preparation in which the entire church was invited to participate, to come together and talk in parishes and dioceses about what are the issues facing the church? What are their hopes and dreams for the Catholic church? And this was all synthesized and developed and processed and sent to Rome to prepare the document that the bishops and lay people at the Senate in October would discuss. So there was, this was a different thing that there was this wide consultation and preparation for the Senate. In fact, some people said it was the greatest participation and preparation for a meeting that has ever taken place in the entire world history. More people were involved in it than any meeting that ever occurred in human history. So this was a big deal in terms of the preparation. But then when they got to the synod, it was so different from previous synods. I mean, the, quite frankly, some of the previous synods were jokes. People would come in with talks they had, speeches that they had written before they came. And bishop after bishop would get up and give their speech. And then sit down. And then the next guy would get up and give his speech. And they had no, you know, they weren't responding to each other. There was no real dialogue or conversation, at least in the main part of the speech. Now, there was in the previous Senate, there would be some small group discussions. And what we discovered was that was the part that the bishops actually enjoyed the most. Now, of course, every bishop enjoyed getting up and talking, but nobody enjoyed listening <laughs> to all the other bishops. And so this synod, the process was very different. Instead of sitting in kind of theater rows, like in church and pews, they were sitting around round tables that had about 10 delegates, 10 members of the synod at each table. And there they had, it was set up so that they could have conversations in these small groups. And then the results of these conversations were fed up and reported. And that's where the final report came from that I'm taught, you know, that I was talking about in my article on the 15 gems that I found in that document. I wrote the article because a lot of people, including myself, were disappointed with the sin. The church moves so slowly on things. And, you know, I'm impatient. And we as Americans, especially, when we go to a meeting, we want something to happen. We want decisions made. And for the people at the synod, really, it was the experience of the synod that was so important to them. People sitting around these round tables from all over the world, Every person at the Synod talked about that, about meeting people from Africa, from Latin America, from Europe, from North America, you know, sitting around and talking about their experience of the church. This was a wonderful experience for them. And it was a prayerful experience because they would go around the table and they would interrupt it, you know, after three or four people spoke to pray to listen, you know, to silently reflect on what they had heard and pray. So they, it was an attempt to make it a prayerful experience. We Americans, when we go to a meeting, we want an agenda. We want to know that, you know, how much time we're going to spend on this, that, and okay, what's the decision? What's the, well, we want to plan by the time we end the meeting and go forward. This was not that kind of a meeting. It was a meeting which in which people were really getting to know each other. Because for the Pope, the essential themes of the Synod were communion, participation, and mission. Communion, experience the love of Christ 
brothers and sisters for one another, our communion with Christ and our communion with one another. This is what the church is about. And we're supposed to be a sign of this communion for the rest of the world in an instrument by which this communion is spread throughout the world. And that comes to the second thing of participation, that everybody is invited to be part of this. Everybody is invited to be part of this and to participate in the decision-making of the community, in the ministry of the community. And then that and especially moves into the mission of the church, the mission of bringing the love of God to humanity and bringing our mission of working for justice and peace, uh, especially for the marginalized in the world. So this was the vision of Pope Francis. And you see some of that in the report that came out of the Senate, in which I tried to summarize what I thought were some of the really fascinating parts of the report. And the first one pointed to was the stress in the report on the lay involvement. You know, let's face it, compared to other Christian communities, we're very hierarchical. We're not a democracy in the Catholic Church. And Pope Francis, yeah, but Pope Francis's response to that is, yeah, well, but we're, you know, the leadership is not that like princes and nobles and, you know, who boss people around and expect everybody to be obedient and don't listen to anybody. No, what the Pope wanted to do was to get lay people involved in the decision-making process in the church. Pastor has to listen to his congregation. The bishop has to listen to the priests and people in his diocese. That's what a good leader does. That's what a good pastor does. And this is extremely important. And the Pope wanted that to happen everywhere. And the methodology he wanted to spread is this methodology of the synod. And that was the second thing I pointed to was the conversation in the spirit. This was the methodology. You know, this wasn't a meeting that operated under Robert's Rules and Order. This was an opportunity for people to get together to pray and discuss, listen to one another, because what we're really trying to do is listen to the spirit. How is the Spirit speaking to us as individuals? But how is he also speaking to the other people sitting around the table? Because that's where we find the Spirit. That's where we find also where the Spirit is leading us. We just don't, you know, sit in our rooms and pray and think, okay, this is what God wants me to do without listening to other people and seeing, well, you know, the Spirit's speaking differently and giving more nuance and leading us as a community to a greater understanding of where the Spirit is leading. And that's what conversations in the Spirit is all about, to help us to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches today. Can we talk for a few minutes about what the Synod and the Holy Father, for that matter, has had to say about the role of women in the church? You talked about the role of women in the Synod itself and what has come out of the Synod and we focus in our ministry and in this podcast on people who are on the margins. And oftentimes, I think women feel that way, that they're in the margins, not having a sufficient role in leadership in the church. And, and they've gotten a voice in this synod. What did the synod in the end have to say about women? Well, I think... It basically said two things. It was very concerned about issues that women face. The whole, in fact, let me just read you a couple sentences from the Senate report. Quote, women cry out for justice in societies still marked by sexual violence, economic inequality, and the tendency to treat them as objects. Women are scarred by trafficking, forced migration, and war. Pastoral accompaniment and vigorous advocacy for women should go hand in hand. So the justice issue for women in society was very strongly articulated. Now, the role of women in the church was also spoken of 
very strongly the desire to promote women in the church, to promote dialogue in the church between women and men, and to see them as not subordinate, but as protagonists of their own lives, their own stories. So, you know, no more mansplaining. Let women speak for themselves. And this is one of the things that the Synod was very important for. In fact, my story came out of the Synod where, you know, a woman was talking and the bishop interrupted her. And the moderators stopped the bishop and said, Bishop, she hasn't finished speaking. Now, this is something that some bishops aren't used to happening. They're used to being in control and used to, you know, and the synod basically was telling the bishop, shut up and listen. And that, I think, is a message that comes out of the synod, that pastors, priests, deacons, people in the church, we have to listen to women because they have important things to say. And frankly, we wouldn't have a church without women. They're doing most of the religious education, most of the pastoral ministries and parishes in the United States. Without women, the church would collapse. And frankly, you know, a lot of the things the church has done in recent time have alienated women. It's interesting. In the 19th century, we alienated men, especially in Europe. At the end of the 20th century, the beginning, we basically alienated women. And a church cannot operate without women because women are the people who pass the faith on to the next generation. They do it with their children. They do it as religious educators. And if women become anti-clerical, we might as well shut our doors and quit. In the early church, one of the attractions to the church was that women in Christian communities were higher status than in the surrounding pagan communities. Well, we've lost that. Yes. And yeah. then now it's like, well, why would I want to go someplace where I'm second class or my daughter's going to be told she's not as good as her brother? Or it's just, it's flipped again from what the initial attractant, one of the major initial attractants to the surprising growth of the early Christian community was the attraction to women. I remember a woman from an Asian country who had come to study at Fordham University in New York, in the Bronx. And she commented on, you know, I see these statues all over the place of a woman. Who is this woman? And she was amazed that, that a woman would have this status in society. And so the church, you know, for all its sins and its, and its you know, oppression of women, there were some things we got right. For example, in the United States, Catholic colleges for women were all headed by women, by nuns. Protestant colleges for women were all headed by men as president. Same thing with hospitals. Catholic hospitals were headed by women, by nuns. Protestant hospitals were all headed by men. The highest percentage of PhDs in you know, any women's group in the country was nuns. Uh, who, because they had to get educated and they were extremely competent. So this was in canon law protected them, protected their property, their autonomy. And so we got some things right, but we got a lot of things wrong with the way women were treated, the way nuns were treated in the Catholic church. So, you know, we got a lot of repentance to do and a lot of progress that needs to be made. And we have to start by listening to women. So between the end of the discussions and the writing of the report, what happened? I mean, who who was responsible for actually writing it up? Well, there was a committee that was set up to write the report. And they also had experts because it was a lot of paper to process because each of these, I think there were something like 18 tables and each of them did about, well, they, each of them had about four sessions of conversations and each of them did a report. Now they told them keep it to two pages, but still that's a lot of paper to process. So they had the staff go through these, summarize what was in and look for, you know, what were the themes 
that came from the various tables. And then these were reported back to the entire Senate, which then discussed them. Uh, there was revisions made. And then they came back and they actually voted on every paragraph in the report. And in order for it to pass, you had to have a two-thirds vote from the entire Senate on, well, on each paragraph. Otherwise, the, if it didn't get two-thirds, the paragraph would be thrown away. So that was the way the, the process worked. Now, the trouble with these synods is the last three days are like, you know, preparing for final exams, students prepare. It's cram time. And it's very difficult. And they always seem to run out of time because everybody's got their own ideas about amending, changing, doing something. My idea isn't in there. And it's got to be in there, you know. So we're maybe trying to listen to the spirit, but we're human beings trying to do that. And so the process can get a little messy. So there were no surprises for anyone then because they voted on everything. But doesn't it result in basically the lowest common denominator that will pass everybody's approval? Yeah, I mean, well, yes and no. It's got to have a two-thirds consensus. I mean, that's one of the things about Pope Francis. He doesn't like to do things and radical things, at least, until there is some kind of a consensus. Oh, he'll go out on his own, too. You know, this it's very... Let me give you an example that everybody has been talking about and knows about, and that was the whole question of blessing of gay couples. Uh, this was something that was pushed by Europeans and a lot of the light people and others. And so, but there was tremendous opposition to this from Africa, from Polish bishops, Eastern European. There, there was certainly no consensus on this. And the people drafting the report realized this and said, basically, I think what they said was, you know, we got to have a two-thirds vote for this paragraph. What are we going to do to get a two-thirds vote? And uh, the result was a really very watered-down paragraph dealing with this issue. In fact, it was so watered down, they didn't use the word gay. They didn't use the term LGBTQ in the report. I mean, the Pope and the Vatican have been using these terms for, well, for a number of years now. And so this shows you how controversial this issue was in the Senate, that the drafters of the report decided, I mean, frankly, I think they decided it was better to be vague in general than to put up a strong paragraph and not have it get two-thirds. They were, I think they were afraid it wasn't going to pass. And so, I mean, that's how it ended. Now, some conservatives were complaining that the Senate is taking over the church and we're a hierarchical church and this this terrible, this should never happen. Well, it was clear the Senate didn't take over the church because Pope Francis, after all of this discussion, you know, the Senate makes recommendations to the Pope. They are not a deciding body. They make recommendations. Well, the recommendation that came out on gay blessing was vague, to be to put it at its best. I mean, it just, there was no recommendation or best for It was the only good thing you could say about the paragraph is it didn't have the old language of, you know, intrinsically disordered and, and condemning, et cetera, et cetera. It just was pretty vague, you know, called for more study, more understanding, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what's the Pope do? Okay, the Pope was there. He listened to everybody. He knows what the Senate was saying. Well, the Pope decided he was going to okay the blessing of gay couples. Now, that language was very carefully phrased. He was not blessing gay activity. He was not blessing gay unions. He was not blessing people's sex lives. He was blessing gay couples. That's what he was saying. Very carefully narrow. And also it, it was insisted that this had to be done outside of liturgical setting. 
So, you know, people who think what the Pope did was really radical, really is not all that radical. I mean, we, in front of East of St. Francis of Assisi, we blessed animals in churches. You know, we blessed cars. We blessed battleships. We blessed, I mean, almost anything. And we, but we can't, you know, a couple comes up to me after mass outside while I'm greeting people and say, would you bless us, Father? Sure. I mean, actually, the only people who ask for my blessing are Hispanics and Filipinos. But now perhaps some gay people will ask for a blessing. Well, fine. The Pope says now, okay, I can do that. You know, it's not going to be all the gay gay couples in the diocese come to the cathedral, hold hands, and we're all going to bless you together in church. No, that's not going to happen. Right. But let me ask you a question, Father, on the pushback. You know, they're going through every little jot and tittle trying to find out where this is wrong and this is heretical. And what I'm picking up is from the limited exposure I've had, I was wondering what you think, is this like, well, what's really changed here is we have now officially, as a church said, we don't hate these people. They're welcome to come to church. And I think that's what's underneath this is the call for some of us to have to rethink and repent. Am I, do you think that's at all what's going on, or am I reading too much into it? Because I often do. So, you know, straighten me out. I, you know, this is a really fascinating question. Why is the sex lives of other people such a neuralgic issue among Christians? Is it a theological issue or is it a psychological issue? I don't know, to be perfectly honest. I have a friend who's a psychologist and I've asked him to do an article for a religion news service on this. I'm old enough to think back to, you know, the 1950s. And some parts of the world are like America in the 1950s in terms of how we look on gay people. I mean, the United States, this is only a very recent phenomenon in terms of our acceptance of gay people and gay marriage. This is very recent in the history of the United States. And I would say that, you know, in large parts of Africa, it's still 1950s in terms of their attitudes here. I think in America, it changed when so many people came out of the closet and you suddenly realized, oh, my guy I went to school with, you know, was a friend with and played football with, was gay, you know, and I never knew it, you know, and other people that you work with, your relatives, you suddenly find out, you know, Uncle Charlie, oh, I wonder why Uncle Charlie never got married. You suddenly discover these things and you have a human face for the person. Now, I don't think that's happened in large parts of Africa. In half of the sub-Sahara Africa, being a homosexual is a crime. Well, you're not going to come in closet under these circumstances. I think a lot of these bishops have never knowingly talked to a gay person. And so what they have is these stereotypes, these figments of their imagination. And they've never, you know, really met them as a human being. So, and they still see, you know, gay lifestyle as a choice, as sinful, et cetera, et cetera. Not as something that's biologically part of their makeup. So now I think also in Africa, there's another phenomenon here. And that is that suddenly the Catholic Church in sub-Saharan Africa starts saying, oh, we love gay people. We welcome them. We're going to bless them and everything. Everything's fine. Well, the reaction of the Pentecostal ministers, the reaction of the Muslim imam, I mean, they will, they would pillar the Catholic Church in its ministers and leadership because it's so countercultural. Now, sometimes we got to take a hit for doing the right thing. And I am appalled 
by the bishops who still support criminalization of homosexuals. Uh, I mean, that is just awful. Everything you say is true, and you got to be sympathetic for these people in these awful situation where there's still the death penalty and all that. But in the first world, in Europe and America, those places where it's not, and knowing what we know that this is not something you choose. I mean, I'm a straight guy. I never saw the clipboard where I got to pick at 13. Well, sign here. What do you want? The point is, though, that when I see the reaction of priests and deacons that are acrimonious about this, and I just say to myself, well, if people came up to you and said, would you pray for me? Would you refuse that? Would you say, no, you are so evil and loathsome and just beyond the pale? And of course, my ecclesiology is, well, no one's beyond the pale of the church. That's what the church is. I mean, it's the mercy of God. So I just don't get why a blessing, just in the first world, where they don't have those extreme situations, which is, I think, another whole conversation. But you can't be a minister of the gospel and be writing off people and saying, you're too loathsome to, for me to pray for you or, or to be nice to you when you show up in front of me. I just think, I just want to know if... If that's what's really going on, is that now you have an official declaration that really, if whatever else you think of it says, you got to be nice to these people. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And it, But what gets me is also that they're not doing this to employers who don't pay minimum wage or you know, to their work. Oh, yeah, that's another whole, uh, the whole social <laughs> job. Yeah, yeah, don't get Casey going. Don't get be, Tom going on that, Father. Jeez, we'll be here all week. Well, this is why I'm not sure whether it's a theological or a psychological issue. Because why is this the central concern of so many people in the Catholic Church, the sex lives of other people? And yeah. remember that this blessing is not just for gay couples. It's also for couples in other, you know, illegitimate relations. Right. Right. And in fact, in Africa, it might be for a whole family, uh, a husband and his multiple wives. No one seems to be upset by that, though. Yeah. I just wanted to ask a question about, you know, some of the things you said about mercy in your kind of synopsis of the Senate, if you will. It was really cool. And I wondered if this is Francis just doing like a journeyman in his recent writings of mercy, or is he, is he really blazing any trail here? So I'd love to hear your understanding of Francis Hill's version of mercy, which seems to be really different than the church's. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is extraordinary. In the past, if somebody came to us and said, I'd like to be a Catholic, tell me about the Catholic church. What would be the first words out of your mouth? I think that's the question Pope Francis is asking us. And I think in the past, the first words of out of our mouth would be, well, here's a copy of the Baltimore Catechism. Memorize the answers and you're, you'll be prepared to be a Catholic. And also, of course, here's the Ten Commandments. Here's the rules that you have to follow in order to be a Catholic. So it was, okay, you want to join a country club. And when you get there, they hand you the rule book about whether you can take phone calls in the dining room, whether, you know, what do you have to wear a tie at dinner? And what Pope Francis is saying is the church is not a country club. It's a field hospital. It's for the wounded. It's for sinners. It's for the weak. And the thing is, if you don't know that you're in need of salvation, if you don't know you're a sinner, then you got a problem. Because the first words of salvation, the first words of evangelization should be, God is merciful and compassionate and loving. Those were the first words out of Jesus' mouth. That's what he constantly repeated over and over again in his messages in the gospel. So this is the real revolution that Pope Francis is bringing to evangelization. It's that the message that God loves us. And that calls us to a response of loving God and loving our brothers and sisters. Because that's all God is asking us for, is that we love one another. And how we live all that out 
we've forgotten the central message that God loves us. And Francis is trying to bring us back to that central message. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's even deeper than that. I mean, I don't think anybody, if you said, you know, it said to them, well, do you agree with what you just said about, well, this is the central message of the gospel? They'd probably say, yeah. I think what they're angry at Francis about is saying, we actually got to act like you believe it. You know, it's like, no, I'm all for, I mean, dressing up and saying all these lovely things. And then we go out and it's, you know, business as usual. Don't believe a word of it. Amen, brother. And off we go to what we were doing before. And we'll come back next week and bless our mess. I think what they're really angry about is he keeps saying, no, I mean it. You got to kind of do this stuff. You can't just say the nice words without the actions. Yeah. It's easier to judge, right? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's the central message of Matthew 25. The last judgment, Jesus separates the goats and the sheep. He says, you know, you were hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they said, we did? When did we do that? And, you know, it's when we did it to other people. You know, Jesus didn't go through the questions in the Baltimore Catechism. We don't want to give up our ideology, our politics. We don't want to trim our sails at all. It's like, well... You know, I have this political position. You say, well, how do you square that with Matthew 25? The church needs to be both a comforter to people who come in the door and a challenger. And that mix is not easy to do. I was reflecting on that during Advent because when you listen to Isaiah, you know, it's comfort, comfort my people. But it's not so that we can be comfortable It's so that we can go out and comfort other people. And I think that's what we forget. If we just come to church to feel comforted, Jesus loves me, everything's fine. I And I can now go to sleep when the homily comes on. No, I mean, it's a comfort, but it's also a challenge for us to go out and comfort and help other people. That Matthew 25, you know, the other people that conclude that passage, they have the same question. Well, when did we see you? You know, there's an ignorance that's going on that uh, not doing it. And I think that goes to your point, Father Tom, about the comfort. I'm comfortable because I think I'm right. I think I'm part of the in crowd. And it goes into that whole dimension, psychological, yeah, maybe the egotistical part, that we live in a world that is those who are successful and those who aren't. And everything we do and Our society is geared toward how successful you are. We don't even see. Stepping over Lazarus every day to go to work, the guy's starving to death, and I don't see him because I've got this blindness because it's all about me. It's our egotistical world. And there's a price for that. And that price, I think, comes to the heart of, I'm not going to listen. I know you could teach me the dynamics of how to actively listen, how to be compassionate, but there's something within us that when we strike what we believe, how we have defined God in our image and like this, that said, God would never tolerate this. Look, it's, it's right from Holy Scripture. You know, it's an abomination. And so is uh, mixing cloth, you know? I mean, we're not able to distinguish that. So I think it's, it, it lies in, in the hardness of hearts that we experience, that we're not able to open our eyes and say, you know, the world says, some of the world say, live and let live, you know? I'm worried about my own salvation and what I'm going to do when I stand before the good Lord. It's a deep issue, and our lack of willingness to accept other people for what they are is at the heart of our not understanding God, being made in God's image and likeness, because I mean, it's, it's just one of those things we haven't figured out yet. We haven't advanced far enough down the road or suffered enough pain. We're willing to let go of you know, our ideas of what other people or how other people should live. Yeah, I think you're right, Tom. And you know, it's especially important to, for Christians to realize just because we think that we're thinking the right way and believing the right things, that's all that's necessary. We're also called to act like Christians. We're still living in the post-Reformation period where churches define themselves by how they were different theologically. You know, I wish we would compete with one another on who was loving more, you know, who was feeding more hungry people, who was doing, you know, that we would compete about doing good things for people rather than, you know, just have these theological debates about things that, frankly, for young people are totally meaningless. 
If we're going to judge us by how we live and what we do, not by what comes out of our mouths. Right. Right. You know, before we get too far afield here, I'd like to just do a quick lightning round, Father, if we would, because I want our listeners to read this article. <laughs> it is really good. So I'm just going to ask you to say a word or two and just touch on, because we're hitting a bunch of them, but I want to give the listeners a sense of what you gave me of like, there's a lot of stuff that happened here that you're not going to hear about unless you read Father Tom Reese, because no one else is picking up on it. And I've read a lot of stuff. So just let's go through this real quickly. And I'll just give you a headline from your article and you could just give us a sentence or two, explain it. On number three, the report acknowledges disagreements and uncertainties. Is that a big deal, Father? I mean, I'm confused here. So what? Well, the attitude of the church's tradition been very paternalistic. You parents don't argue in front of the children, you know? And so whenever there were disagreements among the bishops, they would do it behind closed doors. And then when they would come out, they would pretend that there was all this unity and consensus. Well, today under Pope Francis, they're admitting, hey, you know, we don't know quite what to do. And we have some disagreements. Well, this is wonderful. This is adult. This is the way we grow and learn is by, by doing this and then inviting the rest of the church into this conversation and debate about what we should do about these issues. Yep, this is progress. <laughs> Let's see. You talked about the women a little bit, the dress of the women, the cry for justice. The fifth was, and the sixth, I'll lump them together. Don't forget the poor. And the sixth was, we've got to combat racism and xenophobia. And clearly it says, systems within the church that create and maintain racial injustice need to be identified and addressed. So racism, xenophobia, we're taking some responsibility for our part in that, and the poor. Yeah, I think that is so important because, you know, the danger when we get together and talk about what we should do as a church, we don't want to be totally tied up with what color the vestment should be and how many candles on the altar. We're about more than that. We're a community of the disciples of Christ who was crucified because he identified with the poor and spoke for justice. This is what we should be about. And we're a community where everybody is a child of God. There are not racial categories that separate us from one another. And if somebody picks on somebody in our family, well, we should be there to defend them. And that, I think, is really at the heart of the gospel and about at the heart of what we should be as a Christian community. Seventh, on the abuse, the sexual abuse in the church, there is a proposal for setting up a separate judicial body, separate from the bishops, to handle the accusations. That's outside the box. Can you explain why that would make people really eye is. pop? Oh, that, yeah, that really is. I mean, that would never have come out if the meeting had only contained bishops. Yeah. No profession is going to suggest having somebody from the outside be a watchdog on them. We don't have this even in the United States. You know, the, the boards are appointed by the bishop. Now, most of the bishops are smart enough to get people who are independent and have standing in the community to do that. But it still makes people wonder, yeah, well, yeah, the, these people, they're all appointed by the bishop. Of course, they think bishop's fine. You know, and that's, so they're saying, hey, no, when the bishop is the guy who needs to be investigated, it's got to be somebody right. that is not appointed. So you're by saying him. this was the lay people at the Synod that were saying, oh, but you can't absolutely. investigate yourself and have us take it seriously. Yes. Yeah. So similarly, now check this out. Again, another mind blower. If you understand the church, which most people don't, the synod called for, get this, regular review of how bishops, priests, and deacons, hey guys, we made a list. They know we're here, <laughs> but this is a bad list. We're, you're in trouble for this one. So you made this one, you know? Yeah. Okay? So just so, don't get too excited. But 
The Senate called for regular review of how bishops, priests, and deacons carry out their ministry in the diocese, including a regular review of the bishop's performance with reference to his style of authority, his economic administration of the diocese assets, the functioning of participatory bodies, and the safeguarding against all possible kinds of abuse. Again, you can see the influence of having lay people in the room as members and voting members. They held bishops' feet to the fire and said, this has got to be part of what comes out of the Senate. This is what the people want. And this is the only way you're going to restore your credibility is to have something like this. And it's just ordinary things that you would have in any organization. Right. You know, every, you know, person in an organization is, has their performance reviews sure. you know, and things like that. And, you know, and it's not just, okay, this is what you're doing bad, but this is how we can work together. This is how we can improve things. So this is a general call for transparency, certainly, it's part of it. But the other thing is to up the general tone and way we do ministry and we run things. This is not like about the sexual abuse. This is like, in general, yes. a performance review, correct? Yeah, I mean, this is basic HR that any company, any corporation would have of how you deal with personnel in your organization, how you help them to grow, do continuing education and deal with their strengths and their weaknesses and how to make the best out of it. Now it's going to be hard to implement, isn't it? Oh, yeah, big time, big time. <laughs> but I think a lot of priests, myself included, need feedback on, you know, we think our homilies are great. Well, are they falling asleep? Do they move people? Are they, you know, oh, how are we doing? All right, number 10. Again, everybody sitting down to take a look at liturgical language, saying the text used in Catholic rites should be, quote, more accessible to the faithful. That's crazy talk. The documents need to be more attentive to the use of language that takes into equal consideration both men and women and includes a range of words, images, and narratives that draw more widely on women experience. Okay, the end is near, Father, your comments. Yes, absolutely. I was really surprised to see this. I thought nobody cared anymore. But clearly the women cared about the selection of scripture readings that are in the lectionary. There's a lot of stories in the Bible about women and their lives and their contributions. And we need to get those into the weekly and Sunday lectionary. The thing about liturgical language, too, really touches me because I remember when ISIL, the International Commission for English and the Liturgy, developed a really good translation of the Eucharistic prayers of the Roman Missal and stuff. Really good. And it was approved by practically all the English-speaking bishops' conferences and then was vetoed by the Vatican, basically by someone who's first language was not English. And it was a tragedy. And then, you know, they forced a new translation on us, which is frankly terrible. And all we would need to do in English-speaking parts of the world is go back to the good ISIL translation and use that. Now, personally, I would not change the responses of the people, you know, we used to say, and also with you, and now we say, and with your spirit. I mean, let's not jerk the people around. But the priests, prayers that the priest says, we can at least get the good translation of them so that the people in the congregation can actually understand what they're saying. I mean, the translations now are gobbledygook. They look like they yep. were put through Google Translation. Yeah. And we won't even get into the content, nor do we have time, unfortunately, to get into things like there's a point on the diaconate in the church. That would be interesting to me. Maybe we'll have Father back another time to explain that to me. And then we have the reform of the Roman Curia. And then we've got things like, I mean, Katie bar the door. We're talking about in this thing, intercommunion for non-Catholics. I mean, that could uh, be huge. Oh, my God. I mean, it's. 
this is this is really nothing to but, see but move the along. very fact that they're bringing it up as a possibility as something to be studied is huge progress and brings i think hope to inner church couples you know when mommy can't go to communion in the church but everybody else in the family can the kids look at that and say are you saying my mommy's a bad person I mean, what message are we telling these kids? It's just awful, and we need to do something about that. Mm, It's just amazing to me that this is an actual discussion of an actual synod. So there is stuff happening. And again, I urge our listeners to please Google the NCR article of November 9th, 2023, 15 Hidden Gems in the Synod on Synodality Report by our friend, Father Tom Reese. Father Tom, anything before we wrap this up that you would like to say when we have you here with us? The Synod is not over. This was just the first session of the Synod, and now we're going to go, we're going to begin a second process of consultation. So go harass your poor pastor uh, and ask him what your parish is going to do in preparation for the next Synod, and especially harass your bishop and ask him, what, how are we going to prepare? How are we going to give input into the next session of the Senate, which will occur in October? We've got only a few months to get this process operating and going because, you know, October will come quickly and we really have to be finished long before that with our consultation so we can send the our input into Rome so it can be, so it can make a difference. Yeah. Is this so, plan to do, to continually do this every other year? We're going to be having a session on something, or is this just a two-parter or a four-parter? What's the long well, range? The current, I think the current plan is that this is a two-parter for this synod. But I think what folks is that this style of leadership, this style of consultation, this style of having spiritual conversation is how every Christian community's parish diocese will operate into the future. I mean, what this Senate is doing is modeling how we should function and operate as a church. And that's the real revolution that Pope Francis wants. The question that we ask all of our guests is, given that we focus our podcast on ministry to those who are in the margins, we ask our guests, if you were to imagine a situation where you have somebody at the door of the church, either someone who has been part of our community and is kind of on the way out, or is someone who is curious and looking in, what would you say to encourage that person? I think I would say the most important thing about being a Christian is knowing that God loves you, Jesus loves you, and that what we are about is being a community of lovers, of people who care for one another and care for all of our brothers and sisters. That's why God created us. That's why we're here. This is what life is about. And you, you'll miss a big part of what life is about if you don't join with other people. And we're not perfect. If you think you're joining a perfect society of people, you got the wrong clue. But we're, what, we're trying to experience the love of God and share that with other people even though we ourselves are sinners and in need of forgiveness as much and even more than we are called to forgive one another. Well, thank you, Father. Thanks, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank thank you. God bless you. Thanks, Pastor. Thanks, Mark. Thank yeah. you so much. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulist Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. 
And of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.